Welcome to Behave, the behavioural science podcast where we discuss, explore and aim to showcase the practical benefits of layering behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth. Hosted by Pedro Martins, a director at Total Media, the behavioural planning agency. Remember to rate us on wherever you listen to podcasts and for any questions, feedback or requests for future topics, please email us at podcast at behave.co.uk. For more information on anything discussed in the episode and useful downloads, please visit behave.co.uk forward slash podcast. Welcome to Behave, the podcast that aims to showcase practical business benefits through the application of behavioural science to your marketing. Exploring the bias in the choice factory, I'm joined by the author Richard Chotton and head of behavioural planning at Total Media Group and behaviour consultancy Wilhelmina Lloyd. And in this episode, we'll be exploring the importance and the danger of claim data. Richard, could you give us a quick intro into this bias? Okay, so the best place to start is probably uh, an experiment by Adrian North. So he's a, he was a psychologist at the University of uh, Leicester. And in his most famous study, he persuades a supermarket to let him alter the music he plays in the wine aisle. So on one occasion, it'll be German music, you know, kind of traditional umpa bands, brass bands. And on other occasions, it'll be stereotypically French music, so it's accordions and whatnot. And then he monitors the sales of French and German wine. And when the French music's playing, 77% of the wine sold from those two countries is French, 23% German. When the German music plays, uh, 73% of the wine sold is German, 27% French. So on one hand, it's an interesting study into the sm- how small tweaks can have big sales effects, small environmental tweaks. But the interesting bit is, is what he does next. So he then waits till people are leaving the supermarket and he asks them, have you bought any wine? If they say yes, he says, have you bought any French or German wine? And if they say yes, he says, well, why did you buy that wine? And the key point is that only 2% of people say the music has any effect. And even when he directly asks them, 86% of people deny flat out the music has any effect at all. So that discrepancy between what's been observed in an experiment and then what people claim motivated them is something we see happening again and again and again in psychological studies. So there's a wonderful phrase from a a psychologist called Timothy Wilson who says we are strangers to ourselves. So in a situation like that wine experiment, it's not that people were outright lying. It's not that they they knew they were influenced by the music and then they were denying it. What psychologists think happen is people are what they would call confabulating. They don't really know what motivated them. So when they're put under the, on the spot, they post-rationalise. They think of a, a plausible post-rationalisation to explain why they did what they did. And that, I think, is one of the biggest implications for marketing, one of the biggest concerns of marketing because millions and millions of pounds are spent by marketers. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, yeah. the whole business is built around exactly. standard Di- survey, yeah. standard research, yeah. And directly asking them and then taking those claims at face value. And the problem is people were very, very happy to give you a response. But if you take it at face value, it will send you off in the, in the wrong direction. I'm just going to ask, I'm going to ask Will for an example. Before I do, I just want to note a common theme other than behavioural um, science, behavioural biases. Alcohol seems to be going up a lot. Is there, is there a reason for that? 
Where was the industry working? <laughs> there were definitely loads of alcohol experiments in the, in the choice factory. And, and the reason for well, my reason was it was, it was more enjoyable to test stuff on, on beer than it was on you know, insurance or something. I can see that. Mm. If you're looking for research, just <laughs> yeah, let me know. Yeah. Um, so, Will, so have you got any examples from your, sort of your, your day-to-day of working with clients or experience? Uh, I think there's quite a lot of interesting examples here. I'll start off with kind of broader outside of clients. Um, I think very much we shouldn't take consumers at face value. And as Richard says, it's not because they lie, although sometimes they do. Uh, it's because they can't tell you what they're going to do, what they've done, why they've done it, or what influenced them. And yet again and again, this is what brands do to find out how to influence or give consumers what they want. They just ask them. A really famous example is Trinity Mirror's launch of New Day newspaper. Uh, they ran a lot of market research, quite traditional, um, asking readers what they wanted. Um, and on the basis of what readers said they wanted, the Trinity Mirror launched New Day, which was a positive, politically neutral newspaper full of long-form articles. They launched it in February, and it closed in the beginning of May. Um, it was not successful. And when talking about it, Simon Fox, the CEO, Trinity, the CEO of Trinity Mirror, said at the end of the day, what consumers told us they would do and what they actually did were different things. And it's a great example of building a product and a whole approach around what consumers say they want when the reality is it's different from that. Consumers constantly say they want less sensationalist news but buy the newspaper with the most sensationalist headline. There is that discrepancy. And if we recognise that, it can totally change our approach to market research, how we develop products, how we develop comms, and mean we come up with completely different solutions to what uh, consumers want and what will influence what they want. I mean, we've talked about the problems with claim data. How do you get around it? A number of different techniques, and this is the bit I love about behavioural science in that it's not a, um, a negative um, uh, body of knowledge. It's not just complaining uh, how things are done. There are lots of solutions as well. So the standard approach in a psychology experiment is to run what I would call a kind of field experiment. So like in the North experiment in the supermarkets, you set up a realistic setting and you run two different versions of a scenario. So scenario one has the French music, scenario two, the German music. Every other variable is kept the same. And then if there's any difference in behaviour, you attribute that difference to the one variable you changed. And I think the key facts I mentioned are realistic setting, that one variable change, keep everything else the same. Uh, you need a representative sample and you need to make sure that people don't know they are being observed. Because once they know they're being observed, they'll, they'll change their behaviour. And if you keep those four, if you, if, you, if you run an experiment based on those four principles, then that is a phenomenally flexible research approach that you can use in lots of different scenarios to try and unearth genuine motivations. The, the two that I'd like to talk about is, one, just because claim data is flawed doesn't mean there aren't ways of asking questions that are more likely to get you realistic answers. So there was an interesting study done with um, Spotify and Sony, and they asked people what their top 10 most listened to artists on Spotify were, 
And the reality was that what people said and what were their top ten listened to artists were not that related. People remember cooler artists than they listen to most of the time. They remember the peak moments of listening, not all the listening on the tube or in the car or background music that they do. The second element, though, was they asked people about what they listen to in very specific contexts. For instance, what do you listen to in the gym? And people, when asked specific questions about specific contexts, had far better recall of who they listened to and the music that was on then. So there are ways to get to more accurate answers. Uh, another example is if you ask someone how often they shop at a certain shop, they can't give you a very good answer. We're very bad at recall over a long period of time. But if you ask someone out of your next 10 purchases of this category, how many will be at this shop, you actually find you get a far more accurate answer for how frequently they shop there. And so one of the things we do is work out ways to phrase questions to get more realistic or accurate answers. The second is trying to get data on people's behaviour. So one of the things you can do is observe people in ethnography. The other is that digital in particular has given us a huge proliferation of data on what people actually do. And this can be easy data, free data, such as Google Trends, which is showing you what people search and the, the level of it. Uh, Touchpoint's passive data from the IPA shows you what people are actually doing on their phone at different points in time, also combined with people telling you what they've done the last 30 minutes. Again, people can much more accurately tell you what they've done recently than what they did three months ago. Um, data from uh, lots of other places, mobile tracking, websites, Captify with what people are searching. And this data on actual behaviour can be incredibly revealing about what people do and when they do it. And I think if you can become good at analysing that, it's incredibly powerful. There was one really interesting study uh, done in universities that found there were four leading indicators of digital behaviour that suggested a student was suffering from depression. And this was actually an incredibly powerful way for the university to be able to monitor and capture whether the certain students were likely to be at risk, much more than just asking people if they were suffering. And so it's not just what the data obviously tells you, it's the correlations you can see between types of behaviour and what you know that means people do as well. Are there any other ways to deliver that level of insight? I'm a big fan of those field experiments that I discussed earlier, but there are occasions when that's going to take a little bit too long or it might be a little bit too expensive or, or just might not be practical. One really simple way of... Um, tweaking your existing surveys to make them more powerful and I think more aligned with some behavioural science practices is to use an idea called monadic testing. So one example of that, um, we ran an experiment for... Um, what, what the client, this wasn't for a particular client, so we just took imagery of a, of a Mazda uh, and gave people, showed people a picture of the Mazda, a description of some of the attributes, and then... We showed them the price, and then finally we asked them how good value it was. Now, the twist was that there were a 1,000 people in this study. 250 saw the price as an annual amount. 250 saw it as a monthly amount, 250 as a weekly, 250 as a daily. Now, so for example, I've changed the maths to make it easier, but let's say the people who saw it as a daily price saw it as £1 a day, the people who saw it as an annual price saw it as 365 So they're, they're on an abstract level, exactly the same number. 
everything else was kept the same in all those different cells. The only variable we changed was that was the units that we discussed the price. When we then asked people how good value they thought the car was, about 11% thought it was good value when we had an annual price. I think it jumped to 40% for the monthly, 41 or 42 for the weekly, and then 50% right. for the daily. So on one hand, that is a specific test about the idea mm. of temporal reframing, the idea that when people weigh up how good value a uh, product is, they put too much emphasis on the cash amount and not enough emphasis on the unit of time. Right. So on one hand, it's an experiment particularly on that matter, but that underlying tactic of monadic testing, of splitting people into different cells, keeping all the description of the product the same apart from one variable... That is, again, a very flexible way that can get you to flush out insights you might not find if you ask people directly. Because the brilliant thing is people think they are being asked to weigh up the value of the car in the whole, picture, price, description. But actually, because you're just changing the units, that's what you're really looking at. And by asking that more oblique, indirect approach, you uncover insights you wouldn't do from other techniques. I think that's really interesting as testing. I think one of the advantages now of digital and one of the things that behavioural science suggests to us is that potentially we spend way too much money on market research and not enough money on experiments. So that's really interesting with market research, but the addition you can do as a brand is you could quite easily test those four with different landing pages for different audiences and then see which one converts best. And there's a sense with a lot of this that we've seen throughout this podcast that there's nuance to behavioural insights, is that the research shouldn't get you to a definitive answer. It should get you to ideas you test, and then the next step should not be loads more research, but should be how can we test this in the real world and see what people actually do. And that, I think, is one of the other learnings of behavioural sciences. Go out there and test these things and see what actually happens, and that gets you to really yeah, good absolutely. insights. So I, I completely agree with Will there that you should, rather than and also rather than seeing market research as this huge expensive project that you do once a year, we need to change the culture where people think I'm going to have been running experiments, really researching on a smaller, cheaper scale, but much more regularly. And I would always recommend to clients that you do like a four-step process. You identify a bias that you think might be relevant: social proof, scarcity, the pratfall effect. You then design a simple field experiment or monadic test to see whether it works for your brand in your particular category. If that works, then you move to a real-world test, so maybe those A-B uh, tests on the, on the website or, or between different groups of stores. And then if that works, then you roll out at national scale everywhere. And if you do that, you're always minimising your risk at every stage and uh, you will have greater faith in the fact this is going to work when you get to that, that, that final stage of national rollout. I think, I think that's, a, I mean, for me, that, that's a great framework for mm. any, any brand, really. And, um, there's a- because, because otherwise, you know, you're, you're sometimes going into someone uh, who might be working a toilet tissue brand and you're telling them about, you know, if you just talk about the biases, it might have been an experiment done mm. amongst American students in 1965. Yeah. It's sometimes, you know, on a, on a very different category. So to try and make that um, that kind of gap a bit smaller, if you run those, you know, intermediary steps, it does help. I think that's an incredibly good way to approach that test and learn. Now, that doesn't mean 
every scenario will be test and learn. Sometimes if you're going to develop a new product or you're going to develop a £500,000 TV ad, it's hard to test them in very small ways. I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because it takes me to my next question. <laughs> Are there any other ways to get to market faster but still being diligent without having to test every step? What I'd recommend is that uh, something we call layering insight. And that is that you've got claim data but can be improved by the way you ask the question. You have what you observe. You have, we haven't talked about it, but really interesting, innovative research techniques that are meant to get towards our system one decision making. So implicit association testing, biometrics, more neuroscience techniques. And what you can do with this is start to pull insight from numerous different resources Mm. and places, recognising that there are imperfections with all of it but if you start to find that the same hypothesis is supported and reinforced across a number of different ways of analyzing the data and information and a number of different techniques that starts to give you the confidence that that insight is real and is something that you can base a larger decision on when you don't have or can't test and i think that's something that we should really aim for as an industry is proof points across lots of different techniques of research when we're making big decisions. Will, I think that's a really valuable point regarding the importance of different types of data and research methodologies. Rich, what do you think? Oh, well, on the because I really like that point of the need for different types of um, uh, research methodology. My favourite example of that work in practice, there's a lovely book, you know, good from start to finish, called The uh, Hitmakers by Derek Thompson. But at the end of the book, he talks about Facebook's experience with the newsfeed, and they were very dismissive of claim data. Uh, so they just used click data to work out in the newsfeed what types of stories people liked, and therefore they end up just serving them more of those types of story. Now, at first, that worked amazingly well. People used the, uh, the Facebook more and more. They put more and more hours uh, of, of reading the newsfeed. But what they found after a while is then usership. Uh, or, or readership slumped, and what they begin to think, what they what the engineers began to uh, wonder was, well, if people, if we're just serving them what they want, often that is, um, you know, listicles and cat videos, and after a while, people feel, you know, almost a little bit dirty from uh, of spending loads of time clicking on those type of things. So they began to think, well, we need to serve not just what people want to read but also what they would ideally want to read. So they then surveyed people about what type of stuff they'd want to read. And even though people came up with stuff uh, that was wildly different from their actual readership, so stuff, you know, they might say they want to read about highbrow articles on Ghanaian coffee production, uh, even though people might never click on that, they now insert that into the newsfeed. So you get this mix of both... Uh, stuff that people want to read in the moment, but also stuff that their ideal self uh, might be interested in. So they feel less kind of guilty about spending lots of time on the newsfeed. And they've found that is a better, longer-term um, solution. We've got loads of examples oh, of, of this approach and, and not relying on claim data. I think the first one was with a gambling client called Quiff, And in that instance, it was very easy to convince them that claims data wouldn't be that useful because everyone recognises that people don't necessarily uh, tell the truth about their gambling and how they gamble. 
I think the famous phrase is that if someone says they're breaking even, they're losing a lot of money. <laughs> and if they say they're making a lot of money, they're probably breaking even. Um, so we decided to do a lot of ethnography before the launch of a new sports uh, gambling product. And what we found in ethnography was that, interestingly, it was the period before a game happened where all the conversation about betting took place. There was this golden period for an hour where the conversation about the bets people were going to take uh, happened, and yet all of the gambling brands other than Quiff were competing really heavily for the in-game betting moment, providing odds and driving up the price of that. And we said by actually observing what people were doing, we can be part of that initial pre-game conversation, roadblock our advertising on mobile and TV then, and hit people at the relevant time when they're likely to discuss us, the bets, the new USP we have for breath betting, and that will be a really good moment. And we would have never found that by asking people, but by observing them in different contexts when they gamble, we did find that. Um, interestingly, we also found from Touchpoint, people said to us they were most likely to gamble with their friends. When we went on Touchpoints and they recorded when they were using a gambling app and looked at what they were doing, they were most likely to be on their own. Second, they were most likely to be with their partner. Third, they were most likely to be with their children. And fourth, they were most likely to be with their <laughs> friends. Uh, well, sorry, can you just explain what Touchpoints is for our listeners? Of course. So Touchpoints is a uh, tool, survey, developed by the IPA, where every 30 minutes people input into their phone who they're with, what they're doing, and what mood they're in. And also they've combined that now with something called passive data that records what they're doing on their phone. And so you can capture what people are doing on their phone with the mood they're in, who they're with, and what they're doing generally, which is an incredibly powerful way to understand people's behaviour. And in terms of ethnography, you're talking about observing people actually doing what they say they're doing. and Actually going out and observing people gamble in different situations and occasions. Um, there were one or two other examples I just wanted to touch upon quickly. Uh, one was in B2B, Epson. I think often people with these things think this is very true of the consumer market, but when you get into the B2B market, we can describe what we do. Whereas in actual fact, we're just as flawed. We're still human beings. We asked people about the research. This was IT decision makers in offices. Uh, the research that they did for printers, for the office, and people claimed that they spent lots of time researching and claimed that they went to search to do that research. We then looked at search data on the actual levels of search being done around business printers, and there was almost no search being done around business printers until it came to the end by business printer now. The level of research was far, far lower than what people claimed, which created a really different campaign to what you would have had if you asked people. Now, what's interesting is you can, and this is the same with ethnography, re-ask people questions when you go, well, what we've observed is this behaviour. Can you explain it? And you get to a lot more accurate answer when you tell people what you've seen mm. and ask them why that might be the case. But for Epson, it created a very different, more brand-led campaign uh, that tried to hit people far quicker uh, after they were considering a printer because we saw the level of research was far lower than they claimed. Uh, whether that was a form of idealised self or whether they thought their boss would find out even though it was a secret survey, I don't know. 
Um, so I think it can be incredibly powerful for deciding what audience or approach you take with your audience going beyond just what people claim. Great. And did you say you had another example? Or final, out? final one is just, I think, it's not an attack on TGI because TGI <laughs> can be incredibly useful. But we do have to avoid, I think, as an industry, creating very small audiences based on very detailed questions within TGI about what people do. They can't remember minute details of how often they buy things, uh, whether they'll buy them in the future, what type of person they are when it comes to exercise. And yet we try and build these very small audiences based on that and say they are the perfect audience. Mm. Now that is wrong, partly because the claim data would suggest that they can't give you accurate answers in that way. And secondly, because as we'll come on to later, we spend far too much time thinking people's decisions are driven by the core of who they are rather than the context of the decision they make. And with TGI, we're obsessing over claim data to find the right person rather than having a broader audience and thinking about with our understanding what would be the right moment. And I think that's quite a shift that we could take as an industry to the way we approach media and when, who and how we hit people with messaging. Very good point. Um, so uh, claim data isn't faulty because consumers purposely lie. It's faulty because consumers often don't genuinely know their true motivations. And as we know, post-rationalise. So advertisers really need to make sure they don't take data at face value, but instead look at ways of growing and layering that range of data that they have, whether that's biometrics, A-B testing or ethnography, with a focus on actual behaviour to support or to reject ideas. And as we saw, this bias with most others applies from all examples from both B2C all the way through to B2B. And finally, it would feel almost remiss not to quote David Ogilvy, who said, The trouble with market research is that people don't think how they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. Will, Richard, thank you. And before we go, if you want to win a signed copy of Richard Shotton's new book, or new book, <laughs> Richard Shotton's award-winning <laughs> book, please rate us on whatever platform you listen to. Until next week. This podcast is brought to you by Total Media, the behavioural planning agency, an innovative approach to behavioural insights to deliver more effective marketing results and business growth.